Hello and welcome to Dialogue Sunday Gospel Study. Today is February 11th, 2023. We welcome Kristen Blair with us today and uh, for coordination with the Come Follow Me curriculum. Not that this is the focus of everything we say today, but to stay coordinated, today we're at 2nd Nephi 1 through 5. I'm Chris Kimball, conducting today on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board. Michael Austin and Rebecca Deschweinitz and Linda Hockman Kimball, also Dialogue Board members, are with us to handle technical details, offer a prayer, and participate in the discussion. Uh, we're using our webinar format on Zoom. We're running a live stream on Facebook. We're recording this program and we'll make it available through our website and it will be searchable on YouTube, uh, usually within a day or two. Word about dialogue. Dialogue is the oldest independent Mormon studies journal. It was founded in 1966. In the first issue of the journal, founder Eugene England wrote, my faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. Dialogue is fundamentally a quarterly journal, and I encourage you to subscribe, whether on paper or virtual, that is essentially donating the cost of a, of a subscription. Subscriptions and subscribers are the lifeblood of the journal. In addition, all 57 years of the journal, including the most recent issues, are available and searchable online free, as is also the digital offerings we produce, including this gospel study series. If you value the Dialogue Gospel Study Series or the journal itself, or even the existence of an independent Mormon studies journal, Please support dialogue. We increasingly depend on contributions. And for the future in this digital world, we believe that contributions will be necessary for the life of the journal. Now, as I introduce people today, I'd like to remind you that we invite people to the Dialogue Gospel Study Program for their own voice. Nobody here today is speaking on behalf of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints their present employer or school, or any other organization, unless they declare it. Our teacher today is Kristen Blair. Linda Kimball, a fellow Dialogue Board member, will offer the opening prayer. Um, and because this turned out to be an awkward Sunday for the first four people I asked, all in the please next time category, I'll be looking for a volunteer from the audience for a closing prayer. And uh, if you raise your hand, I'll come talk with you. If uh, Nobody raises their hand, I'll come looking. As an introduction, Kristen Blair is a doctoral student at the University of Toronto, working on theological agency in gendered experience, especially motherhood. She holds a Master's of Divinity from Boston University and has previously worked as a hospital chaplain. Kristen lives in Toronto with her husband and two children, her greatest delights. Jay's promised me we'll see at least one of the children sometime in this program. Um, the way this program, the way Kristen has set this up, there is an opening song called Tree of Life by Nefesh Mountain that's embedded in the program. So we're going to begin today with an opening prayer offered by Linda Kimball, and then we'll turn the screen over to Kristen, and, um, and her program will include the opening song. And um, if time permits, a closing song that's also embedded in the program. Um, with that, 
I guess where we are now is a call on Linda for an opening prayer. Our eternal heavenly God, we thank thee for this time to be together as friends and seekers. We're grateful to have Kristen here to um, share her wisdom and her intelligence and her training. We are grateful for the support we feel from one another, that we may become uh, more engaged brothers and sisters in them, uh, in the gospel of our God. We pray for these things and ask thy special blessing on Kristen today as she speaks. And we say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. I want to begin by first thanking Linda for a beautiful and nourishing prayer that I echo this morning, and also the prayer of that song um, for for healing, for nourishment, for the vision of a tree that is life-giving. And what I'm hoping to talk about today and discuss is indeed trees <laughs> and the potential for these visions of trees to be nourishing and life-giving and um, to pique our curiosity and to feed our souls and give us much to think about. So um, focusing on 2 Nephi 2.25 um, and, and really 2 Nephi 2 generally, uh, Lehi's famous theology of uh, free agency, free will, locating this theology within the context of Lehi's whole prophetic ministry, um, how he might connect his vision of the tree of life with his theology of agency, with the tree that he sees in Genesis that he reads, um, and exploring our own relationships to these ideas, our own connections between these two trees that have been so important um, for the Book of Mormon text, certainly, and for Christianity generally. So to begin, agency, a huge topic, lots and lots of possible responses. Uh, we're not going to talk about uh, the philosophy of agency or what agency is. I'm, I remain very curious about uh, what this, what a potential answer to this question is. But I do want to note some of what we are working with in the ancient texts, um, ostensibly the ancient texts of Lehi's that we find Lehi's theology in. So uh, Stoicism, agency is the ability to choose virtue. You are not free if you're choosing viciously. Um, sometimes agency is free will. For Aristotle, it's a rational movement. It can be trained. For Plato and followers, it's the soul's volitional action. For early Christians, free will is not just the ability to choose good, it's also the ability to choose evil, which becomes the explanation for their problem of evil. Agency is connected to sin and to morality. It has a lot to do with accountability, answering questions of what happened to make humanity as it is, to make this earth as it is. Is it humans? Is it God? Famously, Augustine says um, that it's our ability, our ability to choose that's blighted by the fall. Um, Augustine famously uh, encapsulates original sin in his discussion of free will. It's about good and evil. The reformers think that uh, 
free will is in bondage because of original sin, we have a natural inclination toward evil and corruption. So it's tricky to know, oh, and the Israelite prophets, um, their, their vision of free will or their philosophy of free will is located in the covenant relationship, um, the idea of, of giving devotion to the one God. So when we're trying to locate Lehi's theology, Lehi's philosophy of free will, it's uh, an interesting question. Where, where, where won't we put him? Um, if if we think of the Book of Mormon being a, a work of the 19th century, we would it maybe expect to find more of the reformers type of theology in here. We don't really find that. Uh, we we it does seem that there's some ancient thought regarding free will, but it's also unique in um, his kind of isolated position. He's certainly working within the Genesis text. He's certainly working within the Israelite. Hebrew tradition, and he lands in some interesting places in his reading of Genesis. His influence on our tradition is enormous. So 2 Nephi 2.27, this very famous verse, which I'll just quickly read, wherefore all are free according to the flesh, and all things are given them which are expedient, and they're free to choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator of all mankind, or to choose captivity and death according to the captivity and power of the devil, for he seeketh that all men might be miserable like unto himself. Okay, so for Lehi, we have perfect free will. It's not impaired by the fall. We're free to choose liberty and eternal life, although Christ um, mediates our ability to do this, or to choose captivity and death. So choosing virtuously is freedom. Choosing viciously in the word of the words of the Platonists or Neoplatonists is um to choose death. So 1973, Bruce R. McConkie draws on this to say uh, we need to use our own agency to be sufficiently humble, to get the seal of approval. If we do use our agency correctly, we have peace in this life, glory, honor, and dignity in the life to come. Okay, this is also kind of echoed in more recently, D. Todd for in 2014, who says, um, we assume personal responsibility as a God-given gift. This is this is ancient um, language that free will is a God-given gift, without which we cannot realize our full potential. Personal accountability, so we're accountable for our choices, becomes a right and a duty that we must constantly defend. Both of these are directly in line, and I think um, drawing on Second Nephi two twenty-seven in the Gospel Topics essay. I quote Second Nephi 2.27. Agency is the ability and privilege God gives us to choose and act for ourselves. Again, free will is a God-given gift. Without agency, we couldn't learn or progress. We're free to choose liberty and eternal life. We're to choose captivity and death according to the power of the devil. So through the ages of Mormonism, we've interpreted uh, Lehi's theology of agency as, as a specific doctrine. And this has had enormous influence on the way that Latter-day Saints think about free will. So I want to open it up um, to my my little class here, <laughs> and also anyone who wants to pop something in the chat and I can come back to it a little bit later. 
how is this verse in chapter or teachings you've heard about it? How has it shaped your understanding of what agency is, what accountability is, and what salvation is? Oh, we get to talk. Um, for me, it shaped it as a very works or it works in the doing good things version, not in the um, ordinance and sacraments version of works. A very works oriented uh, gospel that is agency translates into you choose, you make decisions, and um, which easily translates into, and then you are either damned or blessed for what you decided, uh, as opposed to a grace-oriented gospel or soteriology. Thanks. So, so an emphasis on uh, accountability. I'm hearing your your choices. You're you're free to make your choices, and then you live with the consequence of your choice. So. Um, your works matter a lot. Yeah, if you can choose, then you are responsible, basically. Yeah. I I think that point of if you can choose, I, I immediately think about people who were born into circumstances that cripple them from the beginning, people whose uh, parents are abusive, uh, people who have brain chemistry that's askew. And I don't know how neatly those fit into the paradigm of, of being able to choose um, how you will behave or how you will react fully. So I don't know if that throws a wrench in the works or or it, it's just in there. And I see the influence people who raised my my parents came with their own uh, bag of tricks, good and bad. And um, I'm living my life trying to make my own choices, but I know that I'm influenced by the impact of how I was reared. So mm -hmm. complicated. Thank you. Yeah, I do think it throws a wrench in this. <laughs> and I'm glad that you brought it up. Part of this is the uh, nature-nurture issue that comes up in more contemporary discussions of free will. Um, but it's the ancient thinkers deal with this and really they they do deal with it and they deal with it in a really interesting ways including um the idea that we existed as prenatal souls that made choices and our poor choices meant that we were born into poor circumstances so there's a whole mix of weird <laughs> really interesting stuff going on trying to deal with some of these questions and i think you're right in noting that it throws a wrench in this that's just tricky to deal with yeah, I'll share from the chat. Um, David Sandberg says, interesting that agency is exercised in relation to two different beings, Christ and Satan. It's not the captain alone on a ship navigating a storm. It's a learned exercise with and relation to others. And um, and that seems to me to, you know, maybe go to this. Um, and something that's being emphasized more recently is this kind of covenant relationship like who are you if you're in a covenant with christ then what does that mean for agency and accountability i don't know um 
uh, is it a journey of learning discernment? Um, there's a journey of responding to others and learning if and how I can choose differently. Um, I, I really like that idea that kind of, um, again, kind of mediated in relationships that agency is about, um, you know, maybe I think we've often understood it, or at least I've often understood it as um, something I'm solely responsible for. <laughs> Um, instead of um, it being an aspect of my relationship with Christ and my relationship with um, God's children, with others. And I don't, seems like maybe that would change how I think about agency. Feels to me like I was, feels like I was taught or learned in the, in the church, um, we use the word free agency when I was a kid. I know that that word free gets comes up, but free communicated th that I'm an independent actor. And I, as I um, it was sort of playing with the nature nurture concept, I, this is me personally, I enjoyed reading Martin Luther talking about and, and other uh, the Protestant, early Protestant thinkers talking about. Um, um, this works faith kind of dilemma or question as a out of love of God, I am compelled to do. I am, uh, it is, it is, it becomes my nature to do good or to do right or to do according to God's will. And that, um, it, it's an, it's an interesting turn on the idea of me as an independent actor completely free to make my own decisions. If, if out of love for God or love for man, for humans, I become a good actor out of love, then what is that? Is that me really deciding or is that me being acted upon? I also have some questions about, you, you mentioned uh, the impact of our pre-mortal lives, which is... Uh, I don't know if that's uniquely LDS or not, but in the tradition that that we have, I'm not sure that should matter to us because all of the children born on the earth are children, eventually adults, that we are told to love. And it shouldn't have anything to do with... Uh, I don't know, even know how you would know what their pre-life pre experience was. We start at, our point is to find a way to love everyone. And that's easier with some people than with others. But that's our mortal challenge. And I think thinking about how people behaved in the pre-existence, which we have no memory of, ends up doing troubling, disturbing things. And uh, we've seen evidence of that, and we have harbored it for far too long, I think. Mm -hmm. so. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Thank and thank you, Linda. So I'll, I'll just speak to that briefly. Um, one of the most famous thinkers in the history of free will is Origen, who's a, a second century patristic. patristic um, and Origen posited this theory that we existed as intellects prenatally. 
And these intellects were capable of making choices. And these choices determined whether you landed as um, an angel, a demon, or a human being. And um, however well you chose depend kind of uh, determined your circumstances. I think what you're drawing out, which is a really interesting point and a very important point, is um, much of this history of free will assumes, uh, does not assume the body. The soul is what's important. And um, the thing is that we live in bodies. <laughs> and so it's just not all of a debate of, of rational thinking. Um, our, our experience is enfleshed and that changes the game in lots of important ways. I'm gonna I'm gonna move us on. I know there's uh, a lot to say about this. Uh, keep your keep your wheels spinning, and thank you for what you've brought in so far. I want to zoom out a little bit and think about Lehi's context and how his theology might. Of course, we can't really know the first midrash or um, interpretation of um, the Hebrew Bible is much later than Lehi, so we can't really know exactly what was happening in the prophetic tradition that he's following, but we certainly can guess. We know that Lehi is part of uh, what we now know, what we now term the prophetic revolution. Um, so these prophets of whom Lehi is a contemporary, uh, such as the first Isaiah, um, were very, very concerned with three big things. Monotheism, worship of the one God, righteousness, and ethics. So you can see how how free will is going to be a factor in that. Um, and because the, this is kind of what's shaping Lehi and his exodus from Jerusalem, we can imagine that these things probably were, and, and reading Lehi, we see that these things appear to be really important to him as well. So it seems that belonging to Israel is a really, really, really big deal to him. This is really important. He goes back to Jerusalem to get the brass plate, this, this heritage of this identity of part of the covenant, part of the Abrahamic covenant, part of Israel. And then a lot of his subsequent theology deals with what it means to be in diaspora, but to be part of this covenant, to be part of these, to be part of this people. So certainly one God, we see that law and obedience. A lot of what Lehi talks about is the law and the covenant, the iron rod, um, the, the, you know, heeding the scriptures, reading, he, he over and over retells these stories of the ancestors, reminding his children, the blessings he gives to his children are reminders. You're part of this covenant. These are your stories, right, in diaspora. And then redemption, the specific reading of the Genesis text that um, assumes a Messiah, which, as we know, is not, um, there's, it's not a monolithic reading of, of what other um, Jewish scholars find in the Genesis text. These are all the contexts of the blessings that he leaves on his children, especially his children, Laman, Lamuel, Jacob, and then um, Joseph and, and first Nephi and Zoram and Sam. Um, he, his prophetic ministry seems to me to be deeply concerned with this identity he has of um, a, a child of Israel in exile, the living the covenant in exile. So accordingly, this is my reading of his blessing to Jacob, the second Nephi 2. This hit his reading on free will. I'm just going to read this. God is bringing us into a new land, a land consecrated for a chosen people. 
In fact, it's consecrated for our holy use. If we retain our covenant relationship, according to the original promise, the Abrahamic promise, this land will be a place of liberty for us. If we break the covenant, the land will be cursed. The covenant instructs us so that we know good from evil. The commands of God demonstrate this dichotomy. The dichotomy between good and evil is necessary, though tragic. Without it, all things would be reduced to non-being with no activity and no end to their creation. The law orders the divinely ordained relationship between all things. Without this law, no thing in creation would have sense. God himself would not exist, and there would therefore be no thing to initiate being. Because there is law, however, there is material persuasion between good and evil. The law is the ultimate providence of God. In the law, humankind has freedom to choose between good and evil. They are responsible for their choices and able to be persuaded by the pull of both or either good and evil. Virtuous choice wields virtuous life and freedom, while unvirtuous choice wields happiness and captivity. So in this lens that I'm proposing, Lehi's theology of agency is in the context of his understanding of covenant and covenant in diaspora that he's so desperately hoping for his children and so afraid of for his children who he fears are not going to retain this covenant relationship. He's worried. <laughs> These are ancient questions. These are questions that we continue to ask in the history of Christianity. Does God care? Do my choices matter? Do I have free will? What's the meaning of the law? What is God's work with me and my people? Interestingly, he lands in areas that I find in the first couple centuries of Christianity, not in 19th century um, kind of theologies that you might expect. But I think that the questions are still alive. What does it mean to be an agent? Are good and evil diametrically opposed? Are they opposites? Is there a first cause? Is God this first cause? Is something else responsible for the production of evil? Does evil somehow come from God? How do we explain that? Do our choices determine our worthiness of God's love and care? What does it mean to be in covenant relationship and to uphold that covenant by law? What is the nature of God's law? And what about our adherence to it? I think these questions are alive. And I don't think we have clear, easy answers. Many of us, we, we don't land in a, in a monolithic place is what I'm saying. We have lots of ways of kind of seeing our way through these this murky mess of things. <laughs> so I want to open it up again. Let me ask a question. Yeah, can, you, can you back up two slides to the, the, what the possible reading of Lehi's blessing? Because that, that really got me thinking, and this is in response to your question, and Kristen, but um, that it really, that there's a, we could talk about this in terms of how you get to heaven. Um, and we could talk about this in terms of how you make a Zion society on earth. And it, I think it really matters which one of those you're talking about when you think about covenant relationships, when you think about agency and exercising agency. If we're talking about how you earn your way into the celestial kingdom, that's a different conversation than if we're talking about how you may how you live together in harmony 
and make our life on this new land a yes. good thing. And I, I'm just sort of thrilling at the idea that if we're talking about how we make our life on this new land a good thing, that that's sort of a whole different way to think about agency and, and covenant. And the covenants are with each other and they're kind of a societal how we live together. And that kind of, well, I like that way of thinking, I guess. And as yeah, and <laughs> before he leapt right in, this is your spouse. What <laughs> uh, what this discussion um, reminds me of is Paul's lament in Romans: "The good that I would do, I do not do, and that which I would not do, I do." Where help me, save me from this body of contradictions uh, because I think just the expectation that humans will always or could even always choose the right is a little sketchy. I just that's isn't that one of the significant reasons why we have a savior? Um, so w when I read about, uh, the covenants of making right choices and uh, following obediently and always choosing the right. It, to me, that doesn't sound like how human beings actually function, and it makes uh, a huge invitation for the grace of God. And now I'll be quiet. Thank you, and thank you for bringing in this this uh, point of grace. This is really, really important, certainly for these ancient discussions, and I think also just really pertinent in how we are thinking about how does this matter and how do we how do we deal with these texts? I'll also note in response to um, what Chris was saying, uh, questions of soteriology or, or kind of the, the next world salvation stuff, this is that's not the province at all of what Jewish um, what what the kind of Judaic covenant language is talking about. That is absolutely the province of um, second and even third century Christian teaching. So originally, these ideas about what what free will is for and what the covenant is for very much is rooted in um, making as a Zion people right now. So, Kristen, I'm thinking, um, I too am thrilling at the same idea that Chris is that you brought out about um, kind of this, you know, is it about kind of how do you get to heaven or how do you make Zion? Is it about being a covenant people who who get the rewards are, you know, chosen or is it a chosen land where people live together in covenant relationships and in harmony with the laws of God? Um, and, and I'm struck cause he was emphasized like Lehi is, is trying, you know, he's, um, you know, part of the, they're part of the covenant, but they're in exile and, um, and that it necessitates this kind of new way of thinking about a chosen, what it means to be chosen, like what the purpose of free will is, what the goals are, um, you know, is necessarily, um, coming from a people in exile that um that there's the old idea of Jerusalem and a chosen people and it's centered on um 
you know, that idea of like who is favored rather than um, as people in exile, you're able to um, kind of more fully <laughs> understand um, that it's about making Zion um, mm. and and kind of the somebody in the chat has brought up kind of the experiential experimental um aspect of agency and and kind of us muddling through with each other <laughs> to create um uh the kind of heaven on earth right that that's imagined um yeah thank you yeah it also gives me a different sense of compassion for Lehi, who some of his edges annoy me. <laughs> so um, it, it it helps me feel compassion for what I see as his, this deep, almost vehement um, belief in we're still part of this covenant. And I need that to be true so much. And I'm so worried about my children not holding on to this covenant. And so every, everything that I see, he interprets all of this, I think, through kind of this language of trying to make sense of this covenant in exile, in diaspora. Yeah, and and trying to convince his kids, right? Like I really yes. identified with the way you frame this as like this is a this is a dad who's like it's a blessing. Yeah, it's a blessing to Jacob, yeah. right? Saying that you're a part of this. Yeah. So I want to put this in conversation then with Lehi's other very famous theology, or it's not theology, his, his vision that he has, the vision of the tree of life. Um, and I, I want to do this because I think that Lehi connects them um, as, as being, he, he thinks that they're intimately connected. And, and that's part of the blessing that he leaves for his posterity. Um, and I'm, I want us to put them in conversation to think about how he connects them and how, how we might connect them. So in his vision of the tree of life, he says, I beheld a tree, which is desirable to make one happy. And I went forth and partook of the fruit and I beheld it was most sweet above all that I'd ever before tasted. And I beheld that the fruit was white to exceed all the whiteness that I'd ever seen. And as I partook of the fruit, it filled my soul with exceedingly great joy. Wherefore, I began to be desirous that my family should partake of it, for I knew that it was desirable above, above all, other all other fruit. And then choose the other tree. Uh, the eternal purposes, God created our first parents and, and all things, and it must be that there was an opposition, even the forbidden fruit, in opposition to the tree of life, the one being sweet and the other bitter. Wherefore, the Lord God gave unto humans that they should act for themselves. And they couldn't act for themselves, save they be enticed by the one or the other. Okay, so we have this, these diametrically opposed things, right? The sweet, sweet, sweet tree of life and the bitter, bitter fruit of the tree of knowledge. So Lehi's interpretation. I wonder... I, I mean, I, I think that the way he interprets this is that the, the connection is the iron rod. What do you think? What symbols were important to him? What did he latch onto? And how was his interpretation different from Nephi, who also had this vision of the, of the tree of life?
I'm I'm looking at comments that remind us that the that the book Mormon ends in tragedy, that they don't work it out in the end, and for whatever reason, that's playing back into the tree of life and the rod as a very sad picture, a, a like a picture of this is this is what it will take, and you're not going to make. And that's a, I have never heard it that way, and you know, that, like another lesson, but it's sort of. Um, I wonder, I wonder if Lehi's um, picture has a has a sad undertone to it. That we're that this is what it will take, and we're we're bound to fail. When I read his blessing to Laman and Lemuel, I do think he thinks that they're going to fail, and I think he's really sad about it. The um, iron rod I image, um, have, it might have even been a dialogue article, but the contrast between the iron rod versus the liahona and how those are used differently in making choices and going for direction rather than having just your eye on and your hands tight on the rod. There's, there's more uh, openness, I guess, uh, or intuition or something about the Liahona. If you think of those two as um, possible frameworks for how one makes decisions to choose correctly in one's life. Um, but I think this uh, conversation about the book ends tragically is a very important thing to remember. Um, anyway, that's just coming to bubbling up in my mind right now as we talk about these things. Yeah. So I'm trying to remember the, the differences between kind of Lehi and Nephi's um, visions of this. And, um, and is there a sense that like Nephi is much more focused on the iron rod? Than, than Lehi, and I'm thinking about um, kind of that positionality, and um, you know, seeing what's happened maybe with his brothers, um, and uh, and the direction that that things have really kind of are are really going um, for them, and maybe there's a little bit of like. Like I'm gonna like the iron rod, like the um, versus the Liahona, which was I think in a Eugene England essay. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, and I loved uh, a, a comment here, like um, many on the uh, even many on the iron rod will not arrive there; they'll they'll wander away. Um, uh, and like Lehi, others too may get there just by falling to their knees in the wasteland and calling on God. And being directed by him, and allowing themselves to to be moved along the path, um, yeah. Which I like. I was, I was reminded. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Kristen. I can't. <laughs> we're talking over no. you. So, no, no, that's okay. Go ahead, Chris. 
I was reminded last Sunday in testimony meeting that the um, the iron rod vision that tree has the sense of lecturing to people, and Nephi's vision has more a sense of what we can find for ourselves if we look for God, if we yeah, and. Um, Obviously, those are two modes of learning. Those are two modes, but uh, it it helped me think about how how I might interact with these two. That is, I'd rather not be lectured to. I'd rather go <laughs> seek that vision of the love of God myself. Yeah, yeah, and just bringing us back to the kind of the context that I'm reading of of him blessing his children as he knows he's about to die. Um, I think about I think about the words from Lin Manuel Miranda's Miranda's uh, Hamilton, <laughs> who he also imagines a father uh, blessing a child, and the words are: "If we build a strong enough foundation, I can make the world brand new for you." And isn't that just the hope of every parent? If I just build a strong enough foundation, you won't have to suffer. Life can be good for you. And that's what I see here. I just think he feels like, what can I hold on to here that can bring my family safely to this sweet, beautiful tree? It's the iron rod that can, and I think Nephi kind of makes the same move, right? Like it's this, we can hold on to something that's going to get us through this if we have this strong foundation. And the reality of life, I think, is we can't protect our children and all the ways we want to from the suffering that just happens as a product of being in flesh as part of being in the world we know there's no foundation strong enough that can keep us from having a human experience and that is hard <laughs> we want there to be something that can just connect us and across the the chasms of despair and, and hopelessness and questions and doubt and i don't know that there is and that's hard yeah, I love thinking about just, um, you know, again, Lehi as a father who is desperately wanting um, his children to, um, as somebody in, um, has commented in the chat, at least to us, says the focus for Lehi was the fruit. Um, you know, he really wants that for his children, but he's aware of all of these challenges and is trying to identify them and, and, um, and come up with, like, what you know, Let's identify like what's out there and what's what can keep you um, and what can get you here. Um. Thank you. Um, I want to I want to just mention one of my favorite people. Her name is Havamith. She was a 13th century mystic who also had a vision of trees. Hadaviks saw four trees. Um, and in one of her visions, I'm going to read this out loud. So she's, she, she's having this vision and she's being guided by an angel. The angel led me further into the center of the space where we were walking. There stood a tree with its roots upward and its summit downward. So the tree's upside down. The tree had many branches. The angel said to me again, O oh, mistress, you climb this tree from the beginning to the end, all the way to the profound roots of the incomprehensible God. 
And I understood that it was the tree of the knowledge of God, which one begins with faith and ends with love. I just want to bring in Haravik to suggest that there might be lots of ways to connect the two trees. There might be lots of ways to map the space across the chasms and in the challenges and the uncertainties. And I just wonder if the end is love. May I? I want to end. Yeah, go ahead, Linda, please. Yeah, I, I think about the stories of heading a direction, holding on for dear life, or being in a question of which direction should I go and being guided. But I'm also remembering that the fruit of the tree, the love of God, is not so much a journey as a state of being. So we're having time warpy kind of the way our human minds think. We think about we have to hold on tight to get to the end, to get to the conclusion, as opposed to we embrace so that we can feel that pure love of God in our lives right now and be motivated by that. So it, it's kind of trippy. <laughs> um, but I think, it, it, in fact, sometimes I think in LDS congregations, we focus so much on what kingdom will we be in in the next life? Or we're doing all this busy work so that we can gain a reward um, rather than recognizing that Christ has made all of that available to us now. And that, like Adam Miller says, you know, the, mm -hmm. the resurrection is now. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think these stories and the uh, struggles uh, of trying to explain how one chooses to follow a path towards towards with divinity is um, juicy, delicious juice. Mm, delicious juice. I love that. Thank you for that beautiful insight. I, I want to end with with my my kind of hope for this. I absolutely see Lehi as a mystic with half a beak. And I, I think his, his theology has everything to do with covenant and diaspora. And then again, I want to give Lehi the grace of letting this be his blessing for his child. A child born out of his homeland, still in the covenant. And I, I, want, I want to read Lehi saying, My child, you're part of the story. You too are ushered into this great covenant. My child, as I die, I bless you to know you are Israel. Now, I think between the two trees, they're trees. So in the good green earth, there are roots, invisible roots, deep, deep down into the living water, drawing nutrients up through that soil across the whole landscape. So perhaps the reach of these trees are greater than Lehi imagined. Perhaps the love is not diametrically opposed to the wilderness or the wildness, but all around it. Maybe there is nowhere that this love isn't. 
maybe there's nowhere that the roots aren't connected to drying up this water, sheltering, nourishing, guiding. That will end this session. And then we'll be, um, then we will close the, the um, recording and come back for a conversation. Um, our Father God, we thank Thee for the time that we have had together. We pray that our love for Thee can be part of our life, that we can be rooted in that love in the way we live uh, with others in this place and in our looking forward to return to Thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Greetings, my name is Rebecca Deschweinitz and I'm thrilled to serve as a board member at the Dialogue Foundation and as one of the hosts of Dialogue Gospel Study. In each episode, which we record live the second and fourth Sunday of every month, we welcome esteemed speakers from a variety of backgrounds to share their insights and perspectives on the Come Follow Me lessons. Our aim is to spark meaningful conversations about the scriptures, to connect them to our personal experiences and to our understandings and explorations of the gospel. To stay in the loop with our upcoming lessons and this opportunity to engage with Mormon thought, culture, and belief, be sure to visit DialogueJournal.com and sign up for our newsletter. By doing so, you'll receive updates and timely links to join our live stream lessons. Additionally, you can catch up on our past guests and episodes by subscribing to Dialogue Journal on YouTube, Facebook, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.